Today we come to a critically important section of God's Word about why the local church matters and how we need to take great care to preserve the truth of the gospel in the local church. This morning we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through chapter 4, verse 10. And today we're going to see just two points. First, the local church is imperiled by error and false ministry. And second, we will see that the local church is to be defended with the truth and good ministry. Without further ado, let's jump into our first point. The local church is imperiled by error and false ministry. If you've got a Bible, I'm going to begin reading this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. Our society primarily sees the world through the philosophy of materialism. It believes that the only stuff that exists is that which is made of matter. So there's no spiritual realm. There's physics, chemistry, psychology, and that's about it. But the worldview of the Bible is entirely different. There is a God who has created both the material universe and an invisible spiritual realm, which is inhabited by angels and demons. And today, as we come to what is the central passage in the book of 1 Timothy, the passage that more than any other reveals why Paul is concerned about the ancient church in Ephesus and the reasons that he's written this book, I want you to see Paul frames the problem in the Ephesian church as an issue of spiritual warfare. Very often when we encounter problems in the local church, we say, well, that's just an interpersonal issue. Friends, we've got to remember the truth of Ephesians 6.12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We need to know, believing friends, we are opposed by powerful spiritual adversaries. And their attacks often manifest themselves in our lives in visible, tangible ways. And one way that the demonic realm opposes God and attacks God's people is by propagating false doctrine in local churches. The Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So the Holy Spirit puts forth the gospel and his work is opposed by demons who teach false doctrine. There are many types of demonic doctrine. John warns against one of the most prevalent types in the passage I just read to you. Doctrine that slanders the person or work of Jesus. 1 John 4 is about people that deny the humanity of Jesus. But you know, there are lots of other false views about Jesus. We've talked about some of them in Sunday school recently. 
Many people say, oh, Jesus, he's just a good guy. He's a human. He's not God. Or, Jesus, he doesn't want me to change. He loves me as I am to give me self-esteem so I don't have to repent. Or some such nonsense. There are many false Jesuses proclaimed by demons. In the same way, demonic doctrine also often proclaims a false understanding of how humanity relates to God. Many people today believe in prosperity theology. God is a genie who's got all this health and wealth waiting for me if I just have enough faith or maybe if I write a check to the right televangelist. It's a lie. It's contrary to the Bible. Or people say, well, God has no wrath. I'm good with him no matter what I do. It's false. Romans 1 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Humanity is alienated from God because of our sin. We need a mediator to reconcile us to God. We need Jesus. But how are we reconciled to God? Well, here in 1 Timothy, Paul's dealing with a demonic doctrine that lies about how humanity comes to God. The heresy of legalism. What is legalism? This is a word I'm sure you've heard many times in churches. It's often misused. Legalism teaches that we obtain or keep our salvation by performing certain works or keeping some kind of a code. Galatians 3 says, If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not by our works. Romans 3.20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Moreover, Galatians 3 is clear that we don't have to keep ourselves saved by our performance. Paul says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did God start you out on this path only for you to have to keep yourself on the road? No. Philippians 1 says, He who began a good work in you will bring you to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Legalism says we earn our salvation or we maintain our salvation by our performance. Friends, it's false. We receive and are kept in salvation by God's grace through faith, not our works. But today, some people use this word legalism differently. Today, you might be called a legalist if you simply teach that believers ought to obey the Bible. That's not legalism, friends. That's biblical. Jesus expects that believers will obey him. Luke 6.46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I tell you? Paul, who opposed legalism more than anybody, says in 1 Thessalonians 4, You know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. It's not legalism for him to give commands to believers. Jesus gave him authority to do that. Believers don't get to live however we want. We are to obey the commands of the New Testament. But our obedience is a result of our salvation. It is a product of what God has done and is doing in us. It is not the means by which we obtain or secure our position before God. We are secure in Christ alone, not our efforts but the Ephesian church is beset by legalism. There are false teachers in the church, 
Paul says in chapter 1, who were desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding what they were saying. They've got a false interpretation of the Old Testament law, and they're trying to tell the Ephesians, you stick to our interpretation, and God will be happy with you. You know, usually when you encounter false teachers, they come off as very nice and pleasant people. But no matter how they may seem, you need to know they are spiritually dangerous. Look at how Paul describes the heretics here. They are devoted to deceitful spirits. They think they're spiritual, but the spirit that's communicating with them is not the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit's speaking against them, warning about them. The spirits they're accessing are demons, learning false doctrines from demons. They are insincere liars with seared consciences. They have departed from the true faith. They are apostate. They have moved so far away from what is true about Jesus, they show they never really had a connection with him in the beginning. And they have become so distant from the truth, so comfortable with what is false and sinful, they have seared consciences when they do evil things now doesn't bother them. They have comfort in worldliness and perpetrating deception and sin because they have given themselves over to evil. And you know what happens, friends, when you do that? Romans 1 says you do that long enough, God will give you over to your sin as an act of judgment. And that's where these guys are. They propagate demonic doctrine. They trouble churches. Now, you'll notice that Paul here says that the Spirit declares this will happen in later times. What are these later times? When the New Testament talks about the last days, usually it's talking about everything that's happened after the coming of Christ. So 1 Peter 1.20 says, Christ was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Christ's coming signals the last days are here. Again, 1 John 2. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And John wrote that like 2,000 years ago. We've been living in the last days for a long time. And the Holy Spirit warned that the last days would have lots of false teachers. And Paul looks at what's happening in Ephesus and he says, this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Demonic false teachers have infiltrated this church and corrupted the church in Ephesus, just like they have for the last 2,000 years in many churches. Now, what exactly are the bad guys here teaching? Paul emphasizes two of their lies here. First, they forbid marriage. You might say, that sounds really weird. Well, it is. Um, but within Christian history, there have been many false teachers who have tried to argue that marriage and sex within marriage are evil. Back to Paul's own time. In 1 Corinthians 7, the Corinthian church sent a letter to Paul arguing that it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, God designed sex to take place only within marriage. But marital sex is not evil. Those who claim that it is are teaching a doctrine of demons. And this lie has persisted throughout history. So in the 18th century, a lady named Anne Lee said that she got a revelation from God that sex and marriage were bad, and she founded a group called the Shakers. 
Now, as soon as somebody starts saying, I've got a new revelation from God, that should be your first warning flag, right? Amen? But she says marriage and sex are evil. Predictably, her movement died out. Today, there are two shakers left in the whole world. But other people taught the same thing. Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, a false theologian, invented cornflakes in the hope that by inventing bland foods, he could stamp out the sexual desires of Christians. He taught that, quote, sex is the sewer drain of a healthy body and sexual pleasure is perverted. The Roman Catholic Church today teaches that its clerics must abstain from marriage. And friends, has this not had disastrous effects on countless lives and communities? This demonic doctrine is alive and well today. The second demonic doctrine that Paul singles out here is the idea that Christians must adhere to a dietary code, abstaining from certain foods. The heretics are trying to put the Ephesian Christians back under the Jewish dietary law. And again, this idea that we commend ourselves to God by what we eat is another lie from, the anti from ancient times that persists today. Did you know that the modern American vegetarian movement came out of the legalistic teaching of another false prophet, Ellen White, the founder of Seventh-day Adventism, Roman Catholicism, and the Eastern Orthodox churches, to this day forbid the eating of meat on certain days. So again, here is a legalism practiced in Paul's time that is still taught today. And he says this is demonic doctrine. What I want you to see from this first point is what Paul wanted Timothy to know. The Holy Spirit has warned that false teaching exists. Do not believe every doctrine or teaching that you hear, especially believe someone that claims they have private revelation from God. Test everything against the scripture. Whatever does not conform to the teaching of Christ and his apostles is false. End of story. That false doctrine is not some small deal. Someone overtly teaching false doctrine is not making an honest mistake. They are a conduit for demonic deception. They are being used by Satan to attack the faithful and harm the local church. But what is to be done about this problem? Well, we find the answer now in our second point, which is that the local church must be defended with the truth and good ministry. Yes, local churches are besieged by error and false teaching, but friends, Christ didn't die to win the church only to hand her over to jackals and wolves. Christ didn't get himself a bride to abandon her to be assaulted. Yes, churches fall under attack, but Jude says in verse 3 of his book, believers must contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And that word contend in Greek speaks of energetic struggle. Friends, when the local church is attacked by false doctrine, the people of God are not to abandon ship. Rather, we are to energetically battle for the truth. And in the remaining verses of our passage, this is what Paul tells Timothy. Contend for the faith in your church. Resist, battle, and defeat the false teachers. And Paul gives Timothy this charge in six parts. First, Paul wants Timothy to recognize there are enormous stakes in the battle with false teaching. Look back at chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, 
But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. We must contend for the faith in the local church because the local church is critically important. I want to say it again. It is critically important. There is a false notion in our day among many professing Christians that the local church is unimportant. They say, well, I I don't need a church because my faith is a private matter between me and Jesus. Nobody else is involved. Or, I don't need a church. I watch Christian clips on YouTube. I follow Christian influencers on social media who occasionally post an out-of-context Bible verse that warms my heart. I watch a sermon online from some church I've never darkened the door of. Or they have a connection to a local church, but it's not a connection marked by regular attendance and commitment. I, I attend when I feel like it. And they should be grateful when I show up, especially if I put a 20 in the plate. And I certainly don't want a church to ask where I've been if I don't attend for a while. Why can't they mind their own business? I don't want my church to keep me accountable for whether my life comports with the Scripture. Friends, all of these ideas are contrary to a biblical understanding of the local church. Believe me, I get it. Sleeping in on Sunday morning has an appeal. And you may find a more personally enjoyable sermon or more lively musical content online than you find in a church building. I bet you find it more comfortable and convenient to keep people at arm's length and avoid ever answering any questions about your life. But if you're a Christian, you need to understand how we live and what we do isn't all about what is comfortable and convenient for us. It is about conformity to the word of Christ. And the Bible explicitly commands us in Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You want to hear the word of God for your life today, believer? That's it. Attend the local church with regularity, and don't just attend. 1 Peter 4.10 says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Don't always come to church with your hands out expecting that we only exist to serve you. Come to church ready to pitch in, understanding the word of Christ commands us to serve one another. Many of us who attended the workday yesterday demonstrated this. Thank you guys for your hard work. But this idea that I love Jesus and not the church is a demonic lie from the pit of hell. Because the Bible says one of the most powerful expressions of our love for Jesus is our love for and our meaningful involvement in the local church. And if you really want to know how important the local church is, look at what Paul says to Timothy here. The local church is the household of the living God. It is the home that God, the source of all life and goodness, has built and administers. If we say, I love God, or I want God's nourishment and strength and help, shouldn't we want to spend time in his house? Friends, drawing nearer to the people of God, that's a way of drawing nearer to God himself. But more than that, look what else Paul calls the local church here. He says it's the pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, usually when Paul talks about the truth, he's talking about the gospel. So the local church is a pillar of the gospel, or it's a, it's a buttress or a foundation for the gospel. 
Think about architecture, right? You've got a pillar. You've got a visible public thing that stands in support of something. The local church stands propping up the gospel in the midst of a sea of anarchy, rebellion, and deception. It holds the gospel up like a foundation even when the ground beneath is moving all about. We look at our evil world and we despair. So wicked. How's anything ever going to change? Friends, God's plan to work in this world involves believers gathering together around the gospel, equipping one another so that we go out and proclaim the truth of Christ to those around us in our own circles. The local church is a public, visible beacon of truth radiating into a dark world. But what happens if a pillar falls? What happens if a foundation splits? What happens to the building it's supporting? It falls too, right? If the local church falls into corruption, what will happen to the gospel in that community? It will fall. It will not be held high. It will not be proclaimed rightly. Now you might say, well, you know, if one church goes bad, that's no big deal. There's lots of churches in every community. It's true. There are lots of churches in every community today. But let me say three things. Number one, that wasn't true in Paul's day. The Ephesian church was the only church in town. If it collapsed into heresy, the gospel would be lost in the city of Ephesus. Number two, don't be so sure that every church in every community is preaching the true gospel today. Demonic doctrine has prevailed in many churches already. There may be fewer pillars of the gospel than we'd like to think. Number three, even when there are many true churches in a community, when any of those churches falls into corruption, it harms the gospel, it confuses the faithful. And you know who else is harmed? Every single person in that community that could have been reached by the people in that church if it had maintained its witness. Friends, the survival and integrity of the local church is vital for the welfare of any community. So Paul is telling us, in no uncertain terms, the local church really matters a lot. It matters to the plan of God. It matters to the people of God. It matters to the community of people, uh, the community that the people of God live in. And if the local church is compromised or corrupted, terrible damage to the cause of Christ and the people of Christ will follow. We must do whatever we can to prevent that from happening. And Paul doesn't just tell us that. He shows us it. Because look what, he, what else he says here. We, we don't know where Paul was when he wrote 1 Timothy. But when he learns that the Ephesian church is beset by heresy, what does he do? Well, first he starts making travel plans. He says, I hope to come to you soon. He wants to go to Ephesus to personally set things right. But Paul isn't sure when he's going to be able to get there. He was working hard for the gospel somewhere else. He can't just drop everything and run back to Ephesus. And travel was a very uncertain prospect in the ancient world. So Paul makes travel plans, but he does more than that. He doesn't want the reform of the Ephesian church to wait on his arrival. Instead, he sits down, he takes out his pen, and he writes to Timothy. That's why he wrote the instructions that we've studied the past several weeks about congregational prayer and gender roles in the church and elders and deacons. And this is why he writes the rest of the book. Because it is critical for God's people to know how to conduct ourselves in a God-honoring way in God's household. Because the truth of the gospel must not fall in Ephesus. 
It must not fall in sugar land. We must contend to support the pillar and foundation of the truth. And that begins by contending for the integrity of our local church right here at Redeemer Bible Church. But how do we do that? Well, that's the second thing Paul tells Timothy. Put the gospel at the heart of the church. These days I hear a lot of Christian voices talking about fighting for the truth and exposing error. And that's great. But when you actually listen to what a lot of these voices are saying, what you'll find that they want us to fight about or to fight for are just political views or cultural positions. Now, to be sure, Christians are called to be responsible citizens. And in this country, that means we've got to participate in our political process. And Christians should advance cultural reforms consistent with what the Bible tells us is true and good. But friends, that is not how we contend for the local church by turning it into a country club of politically and socially like-minded people with a zeal for our favorite cultural issues. That is not what the church is. There are voices out there telling you the main thing your church needs to do is become a culture warrior church. Friends, those voices are false. The center of the local church must be the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. The main thing your church needs to be doing is proclaiming the gospel and teaching the Bible. And if we hold to the gospel, yes, that will shape our minds on certain cultural issues. But the core of the church can't be the cultural issues. It's got to be the gospel. And Paul now talks about the gospel uh, to, so that Timothy knows this is what the Ephesian church has to be all about. Look at verse 16. He says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. This is what we've got to value as great. This is what we've got to be all about. The mystery of godliness. Said last week when Paul talks about a mystery, he's talking about something that used to be hidden, but which has now been revealed. He's talking about the gospel. It was obscured in the Old Testament. It's revealed in the New Testament. He's talking about the gospel. And this is what we need to glory in, the gospel of Christ. And Paul now does that in a poetic way. With a song that glorifies Jesus. Maybe Paul wrote this song. Maybe this was a song they sang in the Ephesian church. We don't know. But either way, this song is about Jesus. And this is what it says, verse 16. He was manifested in the flesh. This summarizes what Christians believe about Jesus. The Son of God has existed eternally. And John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Son is God just as much as the Father is. And yet He appeared in the flesh. The Son took on true humanity. John 1, 14 says, the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. He was conceived in a virgin. He was born. He grew up. He lived a sinless, perfect life. And Paul says he was vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus, the God-man, was vindicated. But why did he have to be vindicated? Because he was rejected. Because he was crucified and killed. And so it was necessary for God the Father to publicly attest Jesus. He has vindicated Jesus. How? By Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Romans 1.4 says, He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And the Holy Spirit was involved in that, we're told. Moreover, Paul says in verse 16, He was seen by angels. Maybe these are the angels in the empty tomb. Or angels rejoicing in heaven at the ascension. We don't know. Verse 16, it says, he was proclaimed among the nations. 
That's what the apostles did, right? They traveled around and preached the gospel. He was believed on in the world. Many people, Jew and Gentile alike, believed the gospel. And the song concludes saying, Jesus was taken up in glory. The song began by declaring that Jesus came from heaven to earth, and it ends by saying he has gone from earth to heaven. He has ascended. And beyond that, Philippians 2 says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Friends, today Jesus is exalted with all authority. He mediates the Father's rule over the cosmos. This is the truth about Jesus. This is the gospel. Jesus, who is God and man, has died and risen, and he is alive, ruling and reigning over the material world and the unseen spiritual realm. And he calls all people everywhere to repent and believe because he will return to judge the living and the dead. And that's what contending for the faith is about. We've got to make sure that stands at the heart of the local church and all of our proclamation. But the third thing Paul wants Timothy to do here is to see that not only is the gospel central to the church, but that we see everything else in light of the gospel. The heretics in Ephesus are forbidding marriage and eating certain foods. But Paul says when we live in light of the gospel, we understand that these things... Chapter 4, verse 3, are things that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. We've got to understand that our relationship with God is not governed by how we engage with material things. Elsewhere, that's how Paul describes paganism. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. That if you touch the right things or eat the right things, well, you're commended to God. And if you eat or touch the wrong things, you're condemned. In Galatians 4, in fact, Paul describes both paganism and Old Testament Judaism using the same language. Speaking of an approach to religion that's all about how we engage with material things. Now, Paul's not saying that Judaism is pagan. No, Old Testament Judaism worshipped the true God. It was instituted by God. And yet, the Israelites of the Old Testament were bound to the law. Their spiritual lives, to a significant degree, were connected to how they interacted with material things. They had to observe a particular diet. They had to be careful about becoming ceremonially unclean by touching the wrong thing. The entire life of the Old Testament saint was always had to be aware of, what have I touched? What have I eaten? But in Galatians 4, Paul says that's not how spirituality works on this side of the cross. He says, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Friends, we're not spiritual. We're not in good standing with God today because we interact with material things in the right way. Our relationship with God is not mediated by what we taste and touch. Instead, 1 Timothy 2 says our relationship with God is mediated by Jesus Christ. But the Ephesian heretics want to return to the sort of religious practice that Jesus died to set us free from. They're legalists. And Paul says instead of buying into that lie, we need to see material things as they really are, especially marriage and food, the issues at controversy in Ephesus. Marriage and food are not a means of righteousness or condemnation. They're just good things God has created. Marriage is a divinely created institution. 
Genesis 2.24 says, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God has defined marriage as one man and one woman in one lifelong union. That union is generated by sex, but being one flesh is about more than having sex. It's about sharing a common life. God created marriage and human sexuality. And when God looked at what he created in Genesis 1, behold, it was very good. Marriage and sex are good gifts that God has given to humanity. But the false teachers in Ephesus say otherwise. And friends, that's how Paul knows they're demonic. Because what God calls good, they call bad. But marriage and sex aren't bad. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul calls marriage a gift from God, just like he calls singleness a gift from God. And in that same chapter, Paul says that not only is marriage good, but sex is something that married couples must regularly enjoy. Paul says each man should have his own wife and each wife her own husband. Do not deprive one another. So the heretics are liars. They are denouncing what God has instituted and commended. In the same way, the heretics have tried to compel the church to follow the Jewish dietary law. But in Mark 7, Jesus says, Whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. And then Mark puts this editorial comment in. Thus Jesus declared all foods clean. In Acts chapter 10, God gave a vision to the apostle Peter, showing that believers can eat every kind of food. And God said, what God has made clean, do not call common or defiling. Christians are no longer under a dietary law. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, food will not commend us to God. Food doesn't make us right with God, and food doesn't condemn us. Our connection to God is not mediated or ruined by food. God has declared foods clean. Food is good in moderation. But the heretics in Ephesus say, no, 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 some food is bad. Again, it's demonic. They're calling God a liar. These heretics think by rejecting marriage and sex and certain foods that this enhances their holiness. But Paul says in Colossians 2, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Legalistic asceticism is spiritually worthless. God has said that marriage and sex within marriage and food are good. He said it at creation. We heard earlier he said it to Noah in Genesis 9. Jesus said it to the apostles, and the apostles have said it to us. What God has created is good. And we need to reject the idea that denying ourselves that which God has called good is somehow virtuous. In the last century... Evangelicals wasted a ton of time and energy inventing all kinds of legalism about stuff not actually forbidden by the Bible. Friends, that is nonsense. There is enough in the Bible that we really need to be serious about. We don't need to invent extra stuff. And friends, what God has created and called good, we should receive with thanksgiving and prayer because God gives us good gifts, so we should honor him for that. I've got to say this. Some people twist this verse. Because they read it and say, oh, this means I can do whatever I want if I pray over it. No. Even as Jesus declared all foods clean, in the next verse he says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. 
For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Defilement and evil still exist. Paul, who said that food will not commend us to God, said in the same letter, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The gospel does not create a moral free-for-all. No, Paul says that the good gifts that actually come from God are good. Food is good. Marriage and sex, as God defines them, that's good. New definitions of marriage and sex as and sex it's been perverted in our society and in every human society from the beginning. That's not good. Every other thing forbidden in God's word that people want to indulge in is not good. And we cannot sanitize our sin by praying over it. Oh God, thank you for this opportunity to steal a lot of money today. Thank you for this chance to commit adultery. Please make it acceptable in your sight. That's a prayer God isn't going to answer the way you want him to. Because sin is never permissible. But what God has created, believers are free to enjoy. Provided that we enjoy these gifts in the way God has intended them to be enjoyed. In alignment with his will. That's what the references to prayer and the word of God are about. God gives us good gifts. And because God is the giver, he gets to tell us how we should enjoy them in a holy way. And our relationship with God is not contingent on us keeping the kosher law or remaining single or any other observance. Our relationship to God is mediated through Jesus. And friends, Jesus graciously makes believers acceptable and perfectly righteous in God's eyes, and yet he also reigns as our Lord, and he has the right to tell his people how we should live. And we come to the fourth thing Paul says to Timothy. He says, reject the false doctrine that's corrupting the church. Look at verse 7. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. What are these myths? Well, they're a part of the heresy. We know that because back in chapter 1, Paul said that the heretics were teaching a different doctrine, devoting themselves to myths. What's happened is there are some kooky myths, probably drawn from Jewish tradition and intertestamental literature. And Paul here describes these myths by using two terms. The first term means they're worthless. And the second term relates to old women. Paul is not being politically correct here. He says what's going on in the church is there are a lot of people fascinated by worthless old wives' tales. And what came out of it? The heresy came out of it. This is how the demonic doctrine got a hold in the church. So the myths Paul's talking about aren't some small issue. They're a part of the heresy. And Paul says reject this junk. Have nothing to do with it. Don't get caught up arguing about it. Why? Well, Proverbs tell us sometimes we need to answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Sometimes heretics are running around deceiving people with subtle ideas. And what we need to do is take those ideas head on, debate the issues vigorously, expose the error, and crush it. That's how you deal with some false ideas. But some forms of error run in a different direction. They're built in a way that resists careful analysis and debate. 
A lot of conspiracy theories work like this. Maybe I say to you, I've learned about some secret conspiracy that you can't find any information about anywhere else. And then you would reasonably say, well, there's no reliable proof for what you're saying. And then I say, well, that's why you should believe it, because you can't trust what anybody else tells you. So the absence of proof becomes the proof the idea is true. How do you argue against that? You can't. It's nonsense. And good luck trying to convince somebody that thinks like that about anything. And trying to deal with the heresy that works like that winds up sucking you into a bunch of arguing that leads nowhere. And the Proverbs say, when you encounter something like that, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Trying to rationally argue with something nonsensical like that, it's not going to benefit the person you're arguing with. It's just going to drag you down to their level. I remember having a conversation with a false teacher once. And every time I asked him, where'd you get your ideas from? He said, well, I prayed and God gave me the right answers. It's an interesting claim to make because everything he said was contrary to the scripture. But this guy wanted to hide behind his claim of having private revelation from God because he thought that meant I couldn't argue against his ideas. So there really was nowhere to go with the conversation. He just kept saying, God told me this. I was like, well, the Bible says this. What do you do with that? There's nowhere really for that conversation to go. There's no point in arguing anymore. When you encounter something like that, though, you don't say, well, I can't argue with you, so, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. No! You still say it's false. You still expose it. You still put it out of the church. But what you don't do is waste a bunch of time trying to work it out in a logical way. You just deal with it. And that's what Paul wants Timothy to do here. Don't reason with it. Just deal with it. Put it out of the church. Now, this leads to the fifth thing Paul says to Timothy here. Instead of wasting time arguing about this heresy, Paul wants Timothy to devote his energy in a different direction. Verse 7, he says, Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. In 2019, Americans spent $35 billion on gym memberships. It's a lot of money. I'm sure many of us have spent money and time on bodily training. And in most cases, it's money well spent. Because Paul says that's valuable. It's good to be healthy. But you know what's even better than investing in bodily training is investing yourself in training for godliness. Because bodily training helps you in this life only, he says, but godliness pays dividends for eternity. Now, I suppose this means we won't have workout equipment in the new creation. Maybe we'll just always look our best. One can hope. But more seriously, here's the idea. There is a world beyond this one. There's a life to come. There are rewards to be gained. Live in light of the truth that eternity is coming. Because it is. Paul says we have our hope set on the living God. God is real. He never lies, Titus 1 says. His word is good, and he has sworn to save. But who does God save? Well, let's talk about verse 10 for a moment. This verse is very famous. A lot of ink has been spilled about exactly what it means. Let's talk first about what it doesn't mean. When it says that God is the Savior of the whole world, this is not teaching that everybody's going to be saved. On the contrary, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, there are people who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. 
Not everybody's going to be saved. Unbelievers will be lost forever. This is not teaching universal salvation. So what does it mean then? Well, in some ways, what God has done through Christ can honestly be said to have an impact on the whole world. After all, John 1 calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 John 2, 2 says he is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There is a sense in which the Bible tells us Christ's death was because God so loved the world. And yet not everyone is saved. Our church's teaching statement explains it like this. Christ's death is sufficient to purchase all people and thereby fully atone for the sin of the entire world. And therefore, he can rightly be proclaimed to be the Savior of the world. However, Christ's death is efficient to atone only for those who believe. Its salvific effect only runs to believers. And that's what John 3.16 says also. Not just that Christ's death was because God so loved the world, but it imparts everlasting life only to those who believe. Acts 20 says it's the church of God that Jesus bought with his own blood. Ephesians 5 says it's the church that Christ gave himself up for. The death of Christ has a unique, particular effect for believers that it does not have for the rest of the world. It actually saves us. And because Christ saves only those who trust in him, that's why it's so important that Timothy toils and strives in ministry to protect the local church and proclaim the true gospel because salvation's only by the gospel. We must take great pains not to be sidetracked or deceived into proclaiming false doctrine. And that's why Timothy must devote himself to training for godliness, to protect the church. But what exactly does this training entail? Is there a treadmill that believers can get on and grow in holiness? Is there a weight machine that will make us more obedient? No. How we train and grow in godliness is what next week's sermon is all about. So exactly what Paul wants Timothy to do here we'll talk about next week. But broadly speaking, what he wants him to do is learn God's word, use his spiritual gifts, and develop his character in a godly way. In short, Paul wants Timothy to get serious about his faith and live it out. And that's what we should do too. That will pay eternal dividends, Paul says. Spend your time on that, not on arguing about nonsense. But last, Paul says to Timothy, grow in godliness, and then on that basis, conduct good God-honoring ministry. What's that look like? What is godly ministry? Well, it entails a few things. Chapter 5 says it impacts or that, that godly ministry is partly about how we deal with people in the church. Next week, we'll see it's partly about how we live. Do we live in line with the gospel? But Paul adds one more dimension to this. Look back at verse 6. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine you followed. Timothy is to learn God's word and sound doctrine so he can put these things before the brothers. What things? The gospel and exposing error. Paul says to Timothy, if you do that, that's good ministry. That's the ministry Jesus wants in his house. That's the good ministry that guards the local church. Gospel-centered ministry that distinguishes between truth and error, which exposes heresy and silences it. And to come full circle, Jesus wants this ministry in the church because the local church is critical to his plan, because it is the pillar and foundation of the truth. So the local church must not exchange what is true for what is false. 
And if we want our church to be the church that Jesus wants us to be, if we want to stand for Christ, we must intentionally and carefully act to protect the gospel and our church. Now, what should we take from this sermon? First, I've got to ask, have you come to Christ? Have you turned from your life of sin and entrusted yourself to Jesus on the basis of his deity, death, and resurrection? If not, whatever you're trusting in is a demonic lie. You remain under the wrath of God. Turn to Jesus and be saved. If you're a believer, do you love the local church? Do you believe it's important? Do you regularly attend and serve? Or are you content to remain on the periphery? I've got to tell you, when people get picked off by heresy in a church, the people who get deceived are almost always the people on the periphery. Because they're not using the tools that Christ has given you to guard yourself. You're not in community with other people that say, hey, how you doing? You know, you're wandering off into some weirdness and nobody knows about it. That's not good. If you're around other people and say, how you doing? You know, we can stop that. You're not sitting under the church's teaching regularly. You're going to be ripe for the picking. So get involved to guard yourself and to obey Jesus. Love the gospel. I know we get excited about all this other junk and what's on the news. Love the gospel first. It's what's great. And commit yourself to helping protect this church. That is partly the job of the elders. That's really the job of the elders. But it's not only the job of the elders. If this is our church, we all must be vigilant and involved in guarding what God has entrusted to us. If you see something going on in this church that you think is against the gospel, please come talk to the elders. We don't want to lead the church astray. We've got to preserve the truth here for our good and for the good of the community. So don't get caught up in error. Don't always be on the lookout for some new theological idea, or some new revelation that seems exciting. Stick close to what Jesus and the apostles taught. Devote yourself to learning that, and it will pay dividends both now and forevermore.